I found the crown of France in the gutter. I picked it up with the tip of my sword and cleaned it. And placed it atop my own head. Greetings, friends. It's Friday, December 1st. And on today's program, we are going to be taking the opportunity given us by current events and the release of a certain film to consider one of the great men of history and examine what we mean when we say someone is great. Is greatness bestowed by destiny or do men simply respond to the circumstances they're born into? And when considering the sum total of one man's deeds and work, can one really be said to be great despite causing so much horror and misery? And at the end of the day, isn't the greatness of this supposedly great man massively overstated? I am referring, of course, to the director, Ridley Scott. <laughs> Joining us on today's episode uh, to uh, discuss Ridley Scott. No, no, just kidding. We're talking about Napoleon today. And joining us today is the greatest Napoleon expert that we know, the host of Age of Napoleon, our good friend, Everett Rummage. Everett, welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Now, you are having you back. And I should say at the, at the top of this episode that this episode is something of a sequel to Chapo episode 89, all the way back from March 2017, Napoleonic Rules for Success in Business, where Everett, we had you on to discuss Ridley Scott's first movie, The Duelists, which also takes place in the Napoleonic era. And now to close the circle to have you back to discuss Ridley Scott's latest movie about the man himself, Napoleon. Actually, before we get into Napoleon, I suppose I should briefly mention the passing of another great man of history, Dr. Henry Kissinger. And I'd just like to say, you know, we've all been, we've been expecting this for a long time now. And, you know, had he died in the 90s, I think the feeling might have, I might have felt a little differently about this. But the fact of the matter is he died at 100, probably on a great cocktail of drugs, alone, he's probably with family feeling loved, just drifting off into the ether, you know, never having felt a moment's discomfort for anything he'd done in his life. And I'd like to say that that's totally appropriate because the man was A, a number one pussy ghetto of all time, despite being <laughs> ugly as fuck. And number two, a peaceful death after a life well lived is something that I think anyone who has spent his entire life as a conscious agent of international communism deserves. So RIP, Henry. <laughs> I honestly... I've been like dreading this day just because it would be like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when mass shootings were like a big yeah. thing on Twitter and like everyone would post people, please just be fucking kind to each other. How hard is it? It's the same type of thing. Henry Kissinger is like he's like the one bad foreign policy guy that like stupid people know about. <laughs> so you're just you're just going to see the worst fucking posts of all time. And it's especially annoying when, like, yeah, someone who's bad lives till, like, 190. And people are like, oh, you got corn cobbed. It really sucks, Dick. But, you know, he's gone. He outlasted Reagan and uh, the Reagan delegation. Those are the people that discovered he was a uh, communist agent. <laughs> and he won. He won. I mean, just look at China today. I mean, he was the one that saw the hope for humanity's future lay with comrade Mao Zedong. I guess I, 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 I think Mark Ames said it best when it was just like, I'm reading all these obituaries about him. The most annoying uh, tick that people have is to describe him as an evil Machiavellian genius to be like, Oh, he did some bad things, but he was truly a, a ruthless realist political mastermind. And he really wasn't. I mean, he was really kind of just, if he had one skill above all else, it was flattery for those in power. And if he had one belief above everything else, it certainly wasn't realism or anything like that. It was just that he should be in power. And it didn't really matter what he was doing as long as he was the guy in the room. And I just like the fact that like he spent probably the last 50 years of his life just going to parties in New York and D.C. and having people suck him off just shows how good he was at that. Well, like I, I just like like the idea that like, oh, my God, this guy was able to get other countries to do what America wanted. 
He has to be fucking the smartest man ever. How who could do that? Who could pull that off? I mean, I'll say this for him. <clears throat> he did have that sort of educated European, you know, ability to seem smart. I mean, he was, yeah. you know, a curious person who read books and was able to express himself with big words. And if you, you know, it's a pretty low bar for the uh, American foreign policy establishment. So, you know, compared to a lot of the people we, we've had in those roles, yeah, he does seem kind of like a genius, doesn't he? I mean, in that regard, he shares it with us. Uh, he shares something of a similar characteristic with his uh, longtime antagonist, Christopher Hitchens, which is that right. basically Americans will think you're an evil genius if you speak in a foreign language. And it doesn't really <laughs> matter what you're saying or doing. And I guess I don't know, like, I, I think people the way people talk about him, certainly in his obituaries, is that like he was the American century incarnate. And I think there's a certain truth to that, you know, uh, being born in Germany, you know, rising up, uh, kissing ass all the way to Harvard. Um, de- destroying the Paris peace talks and prolonging the Vietnam War another five or six years. But like, I mean, he really did the most uh, with uh, ass kissing and being thought of as smart and cool. And he did get laid a lot. So, I mean, I think like in the grand total of a man's life, I think you do need to take that into consideration along with, you know, East Timor and Cambodia. Do you think that he, do you think that he saw like uh, Anthony Blinken his uh the jazz minstrel show that Blinken was doing i think that's probably that, the last thing he saw yeah <laughs> i think they showed that to him like I, edward g robinson and soylent green can i just say how amazing it is that that's like the last thing Blinken did before oh it's so funny <laughs> yeah he's a, like he's like smooth sailing nothing's going on for the rest of this year i'm a, time, time to become the blues man and then just no, yeah, put down the guitar, Tony. You're not gonna have a, you're not gonna have any time left to do that for the rest of the year. And you look at him now, and he's just so deflated and defeated. And he just he oh, wants man. to be back on that stage. He's probably trying to like find excuses to do it more. He's like <laughs> t- he's talking to like uh, Netanyahu's cabinet. He's like, well, what what if I did a, a jazz benefit concert for the victims of Ten Seven? He's going to be like the David Hasselhoff playing at the Berlin Wall between <laughs> yeah. Gaza and Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> and doing the Billy, the Billy Crystal the Blues Man down, He's going to be <laughs> playing the up. cotton pick and blues at the erection of the new wall to cordon off the <laughs> Sinai Desert concentration camp. Do you think that like Kissinger saw that and was like, why didn't I get to do that? <laughs> Why didn't I learn to play guitar? I could have gotten laid yeah. so much more. <laughs> he just really wanted to be the blues man. You know, and you know, Kissinger famously said power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, but he wasn't counting on a blues rock cover. Yeah. No, I would I would be surprised if Anthony Blinken is putting anything putting up anything less than Wilt Chamberlain numbers. <laughs> <laughs> what he needs is a strategist. A man of his prestige cannot simply go after an enemy all willy nilly. He can't give an enemy a free willy what? What you need is a second in command who understands the intricacies of organized villainy. Is this I could offer you? Perfect. You're hired, uh, number Number Killinger. Dr. Henry Killinger. And this is my magic murder bag. Well, I mean, it, it, it's sort of sickening to me because, like, it, you know, Kissinger was a guy whose, like, one real skill was encouraging the belief among Americans that he was a smart genius and mastermind and he was, like, the, in that he had power and that he was a man who exercised power. And I think, like, I'm sure in some sense he would like to be mentioned or have his death mentioned on an episode where we discussed Napoleon. <laughs> you know, probably... Uh, you know the guy, the guy who all powerful men uh, here after Napoleon's death, sort of like uh, in some way or another, compare themselves to or measure themselves against. And I guess like this is my way of introducing uh, both Napoleon, the historical figure, and Ridley Scott's movie about it. Uh, I remember a couple of weeks ago on the internet there was like a, there was a big joke going around that like women finding out and like having it be confirmed that all of the men in their lives are at some point in the day thinking about the Roman Empire. And just discovering that, like, oh, men everywhere are constantly thinking about the Roman Empire. Wrong. Not true. Boys <laughs> are thinking about Rome. Men are thinking about the Napoleonic Age. Ev, I'm sure you would agree with me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually do. I mean, kidding aside, I do think um, it is. it does make me happy to see people talking about this story again because, I mean, it is, you know, 
obviously it's crazy to say that, you know, one man founded the modern world. But like if there is one story to, to know, to understand the modern world, I would say it's this one. I mean, it's, it's history upon horseback. Uh, I mean, he he was he was the guy. But like, uh, the question is, you know, was he re- what what was he really great? Was he you know Napoleon the Emperor or was he Lefraudlian? <laughs> you, you have a thought on that? Uh, was he was he Lefraud? Did he well, have Mickey Mouse victories or was he the real deal? Was he truly the goat? I mean, like anything with Napoleon, the answer is kind of both. You know, this movie very much gave you the sort of uh, like farcical side of his character and his story which is definitely there. Um, But then, you know, the sort of uh, the myth that he built around himself, the Napoleonic legend, you know, that is based in reality. He really did do, you know, most of those things um, in, you know, that, that sort of grand narrative. So um, kind of, it's both at the same time. It is a a, a total farce, but it's also, you know, it's the uh, the crucible that built the modern world. So there is that very serious element as well. All right. So just to, to, to dive into the movie, like Everett, you've been, you know, you've been doing the Asian Napoleon. Like you're you are a Napoleon expert. Like you've been doing this show for years now. What like as the official Chapo Napoleon expert? What was your overall impression of Ridley Scott's film? Well, so it's probably gonna. <laughs> It's probably going to sound like I did not enjoy this movie. So I'll say up front that I actually did quite enjoy the experience watching it. Uh, that said, you know, when Ridley Scott was uh, interviewed in the, before the movie came out and was talking about how, you know, he wasn't thinking about historical accuracy and he didn't care what historians had to say, that definitely shows on the screen. Uh, the movie is completely crazy. Um, the pacing is like, you know, absolutely a sprint. Uh, that nothing happens on the screen the way it happened in real life. I mean, you could, I could spend the whole rest of this episode just listing all the things that, you know, they made up or got wrong. And so it's a crazy experience, like almost like it's a hallucination. Um, I don't think they really get much at sort of what made Napoleon great. It's more, like I said, just kind of the, the farcical side of the story. But it's fun. I actually had a good time watching it. It's uh, interesting to watch, even though it's kind of a disaster in some ways. I mean, previous uh, previous film treatments of Napoleon's life are like the ones that are serious are either is the, the Abel Gantz silent film from 1929 that is six hours long and you need three projectors to watch. And <laughs> but then like that treats that that is an adaptation of his whole life and it's six hours long. And the other ones, like the Rod Steiger one, Waterloo, are about like discrete engagements. So, and then repeatedly, like, I mean, I, I can't help but see this movie as Ridley Scott forever in his entire career, from the duelist to now, trying to catch up to Stanley Kubrick. Because ah. Kubrick uh, had reportedly wanted to do a Napoleon biopic. And apparently, I remember Matt told me he read the screenplay for it a while ago. And the way that it handled his, his Napoleon's life in the Kubrick version was sort of similar to this. It was very episodic. It just sort of accepted that it was like, here are eight or nine like discrete incidents from his life, but we're not going to really do much to fill in the gaps in between it because like that's just, it's just the sheer scope of everything Napoleon did in his life is just, it's impossible to fit into like a narrative film unless it's six hours long. Yeah. I mean, even you know, I've been doing, I've got over a hundred hours under my belt and I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. Uh, my take on this film is that uh, Ridley Scott needs to be sent into some sort of cinematic exile. Like if there is a movie equivalent of Elba or St. Helena, we've got to send this old British man there before who Apple giving him five what 280 million. How much money did this fucking movie cost? They're giving him billions of dollars to make these movies and they are all so fucking tedious. I suppose I should say I have the things that I did like about this movie, which were the uh, the battle scenes. I mean, obviously, that's what Ridley Scott does. They deliver. And I know much was made about probably the signature scene in this movie when he unleashes a cannon volley into a frozen lake and like sinks like hundreds of Austrian soldiers. I know that didn't happen, but that's not kind of like the historical accuracy I care about in movies because I'm like, if it looks cool, I'm OK with it being in a movie. Yeah, I totally was- agree with you. Uh, that that scene, uh, it's funny that that like the thing with the lakes, they've pretty much proven now it didn't happen. But weirdly, um, like memoirs of French soldiers who fought in that battle, a lot of them mention that. 
So that's like, it's not actually authentic, but it's like an authentic urban legend from the actual time of the battle, which is actually kind of cool, I think. Um, and it was really like breathtaking on the screen, all those shots of the guy sinking down. So I was actually fine with that, even though it is totally made up. Uh, I would also say just from doing like Hell on Earth, anything that you can put on screen that captures how horrifying and miserable any aspect of being in a early modern or pre-modern battle would be, even if it is of marginal, you know, direct factualness, I, I think is an overall plus. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it was appropriately terrifying. Because another thing, another pl- another check I will give this movie, despite my s- solid Ridley Scott hater status, is that this movie does do a good job of depicting what it's like when a fucking cannon shot hits a human body at, like, 10 feet. Because, <laughs> oh, my God, there are some really... Uh, some some cannonball hits in this movie that are pretty impressive, and it's just like, how much like like Everett? How much does the average cannonball weigh? Like they would fire in those volleys. Well, um, I mean, it varied. Uh, kind of the standard is uh, either eight or twelve pounds, but the uh, the really terrifying, uh, you know, the shot of uh, thirteen Vendemiere when he fires into the crowd. Yeah. Uh, in reality, it was not a crowd. It was a. It was mostly uh, mutinying soldiers. So that was like. I mean, a hundred of Napoleon's guys died in that battle, so it was not a defenseless crowd by any means. Um, but th- those cannon were firing grape shot, which is basically like a gigantic shotgun shell. So it's Ooh. just spraying like debris and little tiny musket balls. And yeah, they were horrifying. There's a there's a account a, a, a I read of a battle once where the uh, their uh, the, the French were maneuvering with their uh, their bayonets on and their, their guns on their shoulders. So the bayonets up in the air and um, people could hear this weird rattling sound and no one could figure out what it was. And it was grape shot rounds bouncing off the bayonets, just like, oh you know, sounded like rain on a tin roof. And oh, yeah, Jesus. it would have been absolutely terrifying to be exposed to that. I mean, even that's one of those things that uh, even, you know, seasoned soldiers would be stopped dead when they got hit by that stuff. Cause it's just horrifying to see that many people get mowed down all at once. Uh, Felix, did you, do you have thoughts on the movie? I didn't see it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, your thoughts on Napoleon, Felix, <laughs> Lafrodlian or not? Um, he gave it his best. Unlike Ridley Scott. No, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Napoleon supporter. I always have been. Well, I guess uh, that's, that's another thing I appreciated about the release of this movie Ev, is that, uh, like in the reviews of the movie, we got to like we got a little treatment of the sort of the, the ongoing historical battle over like who can who can claim and condemn Napoleon in the modern era, and it seems like it mostly does break down on are you English or French, and one of the one of my favorite things about you doing the show is hearing from you about irate British listeners who will always nitpick every detail uh, that perhaps uh, depicts Napoleon as something other than a Hitler-like monster. Yeah, that's something I was really not expecting when I started the show. Um, you know, to me, I'm not like rooting for people in this. You know, to me that like, you know, it's like reading uh, the Iliad and going, ah, oh, I hate Odysseus so much. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's ancient history. It's very interesting history and it's a great story. But, you know, I'm not really here to make moral judgments on these people. But as it turns out, quite a lot of people who are into this stuff, that is what they're into it for, is they really feel very strongly that, you know, um, typically I encounter the, uh, the, the the Brits who, you know, as you said, you know, really uh, think of him as this kind of buffoon caricature slash evil monster. And, you know, it's, uh, I mean... No one is that simplistic a character, um, especially not someone with as as strange and varied a career as Napoleon. Well, uh, I will say that in this movie, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal of Napoleon was, I mean, and and I, I like I I've not studied anywhere like close to anything about Napoleon, but I will just say that his presentation of Napoleon was a bit odd to me. Uh, it seemed to me like he was portrayed in this movie as basically being. Um, an artillery autist and uh, like a sexual dysfunctional. Like it, it seemed to like we heavily implied that his world bestriding destiny was driven by a sense of sexual inadequacy. If you look down, you'll see a surprise. Once you see it, you will always want it. Yeah, I mean that's that was kind of an odd. You know, there was a moment in his relationship with Josephine where it was sort of like that very early in their relationship. 
But um, he, okay, so they correctly depict that he was an extremely horny man. Um, and he was the most famous European for centuries. So he, well, I'll put it this way. I once saw two historians debate whether or not Napoleon had slept with over a thousand women. Um, so that should have been at the end when they put up the body counts that should have been the body count they put up the screen at the end Uh, because he was he was uh, between when he first got famous and when he was exiled he was I once read a story of a guy who had to deliver a lot of um, uh, messages to Napoleon's headquarters and a lot of times when you delivered a message you know from a, a general or a marshal to Napoleon uh, your orders would be, you know, put this in his hands and watch him read it and then come back with the response. So you had to actually get like a second of FaceTime with Napoleon to deliver these letters. And so the guy is in this special waiting room with mostly other messengers who are, you know, have the same orders of, you know, it's basically a waiting room for people who need five minutes with him. And sometimes when that would happen, uh, there would just be like an actress or an opera singer in the waiting room just waiting her turn with the emperor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kissinger wishes. Well, I mean, he basically, yes, you know, Zsa Gabor, Jill St. Clair. Well, I mean, like, yeah, he is, he is astonishingly horny in this movie. And I've actually, uh, Jacob Bacharach said the movie actually underplayed how, how both cucked and horny he was. Are we correcting him on the record now? Or, I mean, like, it, most of the movie is about him and Josephine's relationship. And the movie does portray him as being mega cuckolded by her and even like changing his military plans to come home and uh just cover up his he literally says uh my like he's like the whole country knows my wife is a slut (laughs) and he like he like he returns home from the egyptian campaign because one of his agit like one of his uh aide-de-camps tells him that his wife is uh taking a lover and he's like prepare me a frigate at once i'm getting out of here they're like but sir it's desertion uh that actually had happened uh much earlier um, her tryst with that guy. That is a real guy who they, they depict her sleeping with in the movie. Um, but that had happened much earlier. Um, but basically, I mean, what they, what they, they do depict that, yes, he was, he did have this horrible complex about being cucked by his wife. But after like the, uh, the first year of their marriage, they had this weird sort of tit for tat cheating thing where, you know, he would, you know, cause he got back at her by having his own super public affair in Egypt and then, you know, the, kind of the rest of their relationship was like that, where they would sort of, uh, they sort of never really forgave each other for some of the stuff that happened right after they got married. And so their whole, uh, their whole relationship was just kind of this weird back and forth where they would sort of almost be at war with each other and like trying to hurt each other. And then they would, you know, dial it back and reconcile and get super handsy. And there's actually, there's a great, uh, I read once one of his uh, one of his friends talking about how it was kind of uncomfortable being in a in a carriage with him, him and Josephine because they were just <laughs> they had their hands on each other all the time in this really con- really confined space where the guys like two feet away watching them like grope <laughs> each other. Um, Ev, what is the historical consensus on what Josephine's zigzags were? Okay. Uh, Napole- Napoleon always <laughs> talked about this in his letters. And I always figured it was some type of girl on top move, like a very rudimentary <laughs> one. Where, where it's just like, you're not really stroking, but she's sort of grinding. Yeah, I, I figured it was like, he's like the first guy ever to suggest girl on top. Like that was <laughs> one of his innovations. So that is a real thing, the zigzag. Um, it's referenced in letters and it's never explained. And I've actually seen people with PhDs, I have seen debating this, what it was. <laughs> And it seems to be now I agree with you, Felix, to me, that strongly suggests a uh, cowgirl scenario. (laughs) (laughs) But I've also seen it argued that it was a mouth thing, uh, which mouth stuff was huge in this era. So that that could be the British. That was like their number one insult to the French is that they make love with their mouths. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Think how think how much think how like dangerous it would have been to do mouth stuff in that time <laughs> everyone, oh, yeah, had, everyone had situation. like a oh yeah like, like it wasn't like now where you know teeth are a great uh class signifier everyone like everyone had like 
fucked up snaggle teeth. Everyone looked like, like Shane McGowan. R.I.P. <laughs> no, yeah, it was just it was just like uh, sticking your cock into a mystery box. <laughs> You did not know what you were gonna get. Well, the uh, the, the movie, uh, like it, 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 it depicts their letters between them, and um, their letters between them were. I mean, he he was remarkably dirty in the letters, and wouldn't he like to write about sniffing her panties and stuff like that? Like he was, I mean, like see, like he as a movie, he was very sprung for this Josephine lady. Yeah, I mean, she was. You know, before the era of mass media, people who were kind of gossiped about and the subject of sort of proto tabloid. Uh, gossip were like mistresses of powerful, you know, generals and politicians and stuff. And she was like one of the more famous people in Paris. Um, so she was this kind of desirable, like, I mean, she was like a party girl. Um, you know, she, in, in the movie, they, they, they show that of that, that uh, him meeting her at that kind of weirdo, like orgy slash classy function it's like uh, it's a, it's this it's the survivors ball for all the people who were let out after when the ra- after the reign of terror ends and like all the people waiting for the chop get let out and they have a big party and because they're like welcome back into like French society I guess like was that a which real thing? The, those did not really happen. That's a total myth. But um, <laughs> it's a kind of a fun <laughs> myth though. Yes, I, I was thinking like if that was true, the vibe of those parties would have been uh, pretty outrageous. <laughs> well, that that era, I mean. They didn't have like survivors balls as is depicted in the movie, but like the era right after the reign of terror was an absolute, I mean, the guys who were in power were really corrupt and loved partying and drinking and fucking. And it was, that era was like, you know, I actually really enjoyed that scene because like a lot of history movies would not have gone there, would have depicted it as kind of stately fancy thing, but no, they really were like, like just getting drunk and fucking each other while the classical music played in the background. <laughs> well, actually, here, here's, a, here's a question about an incident portrayed in the movie that I wanted, your, wanted, wanted a historian's perspective on. Did Robespierre actually shoot himself in the face attempting to commit suicide uh, as, as they hauled him off and then like botched the job so he literally just put, put like a ball bearing in his fucking cheek or something? Uh, so that did probably happen. Accounts differ a bit. Um, it didn't happen in the parliament, though. Basically, the, the scene kind of where he loses control of the, of the legislature did happen kind of roughly as they depict it. But after that happened, he, he and his friends all ran away to their like secret headquarters. And there is where he shot himself in the face and failed. Again, supposedly, there's, there's some differing accounts. Um, supposedly, there's a, a, other accounts say it was this National Guardsman who shot him in the face. But Either way, when he went to the guillotine, apparently people were, you know, really amped up to see this guy get his head chopped off. And then he shows up and he's like half dead and like can't talk. And <laughs> people are kind of like, oh, this is a letdown. <laughs> yeah, because I think right yeah, yeah. after he, if he shot himself, after he was shot, he also like contracted basically a, oh, surely life-threatening like illness and was basically dying already by the time they, they got him to the, the guillotine. Oh, yeah, he, w- he would not have lived had they not done that and he couldn't he couldn't i mean his jaw was blown off he couldn't talk he couldn't really eat he was you know basically dying and they had to just kind of haul him to the guillotine he didn't have any last words or anything because he couldn't speak um, you know it was kind yeah, of a disgusting it, it, affair <laughs> yeah it really takes the fun out of seeing a public execution and you know ridley scott always this always know always known for subtlety uh, the movie <laughs> begins the movie begins with uh, napoleon watching marie antoinette get her head chopped off and like yeah, they, they hold it really up, they, for, they but... display it to the crowd. Yeah, I, I assume that was a little bit of artistic license. But just back to uh, Joaquin Phoenix's very odd portrayal of Napoleon here. And like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I, I say like, I mean, maybe you disagree with me, but like he, he plays him like he is in the, to use the, you know, in parlance of our times, neurodivergent. And he's a guy that like really doesn't understand social cues or niceties and is an outsider because he's a Corsican, but also just because he's like kind of weird and is just very good at artillery, but not really at talking to people. Well, I didn't totally hate that side of his portrayal. I mean, because there is a side of Napoleon that is, I mean, people have debated if he was autistic. There is a side of him that's just kind of introverted and uh, analytical. And um, it's not so much that he didn't understand social graces. I mean, he like went to a university, which was pretty rare in that time. Uh, and 
uh, he did come from the nobility, the very bottom ranks of the nobility, but still he did have that, that background. Uh, it was more that he uh, didn't give a fuck about social niceties, <laughs> um, which uh, when he was very young, he did kind of seem like this outsider, sad sack weirdo. Um, the thing is, you know, when you, you know, are also a genius and attain all this power, people view that in a different light. And so he was more, um, more of kind of a sort of weird introverted genius than a sort of, you know, grunting weirdo buffoon as he was in the movie. Um, (laughs) but that's not so far off from the reality. Uh, as in all of your research, has there ever been uh, like any firsthand account of Napoleon getting so horny he starts meowing like a cat? <laughs> my favorite scene in the movie where he walks in on Josephine and just starts going, and she's with her like attending ladies, and just starts going me 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 and she's like, oh, all right, and then he gives her like five seconds of the most spastic back shots, and he's like, oh, ooh, I put that work in, I put that work in, girl, we have to take a baby tonight, and it's just like <laughs> she's like doing a cross, she's doing Sudoku. That's uh, that's one thing that actually kind of bothered me. Like, I mean. They were both supposedly very good and bad. You know, this it sounds weird to say, but you know, people did talk <laughs> about that at that time. Um, and so that I wanted if they're if they're going to show them going at it, there should be some fireworks. <laughs> yeah. I did not get that like, whatsoever. Like nine and a half weeks or <laughs> <laughs> body heat or something. Uh, Will, Will, I saw you posting about the, the his his horniness scene, and I, I did did want to say that I, I kind of appreciate that because you know the way that you uh, that one performs horniness with a partner, you know, it, it's it's based through our mediated times where you've like seen examples of maybe how other people are doing that. In the early 1800s, uh, you got to make all that stuff up for yourself. So I imagine that uh, different people have different obscure rituals for uh, announcing themselves to their partners. Yeah, uh, no one in the 18th century had seen a cartoon of a wolf hitting their head with a big yeah, exactly, with a big <laughs> their eyes popping out of their head. I, I know. I know. Like for someone who studies this, uh, an aspect of the movie that you found very entertaining, and that I also enjoy it, is when you encounter all your guys, yes. all the guys that you've been researching and and podcasting about, and like just delving into their lives. And even if they're just like, you know, like for instance, on our last episode back in 2017, you shouted out one of the great villains of the French Revolution, Fauché a really venal, evil man who gets name-checked at one time in this movie, but we never get any of his character. Who are some of the other guys that you spotted in this movie that were big for Age of Napoleon? Oh, man. Um, well, Marshal Davout, probably Napoleon's greatest subordinate and, and my, my personal favorite of his marshals, uh, is in the movie and only has one line. He's just kind of, it's very noticeable because he's this big, giant, fat guy with glasses. And so mm-hmm. it's just kind of like, why is there a big fat guy with glasses in the background? <laughs> um, but he was a great general and kind of an interesting character. Um, there's also, they kind of combine uh, Marshal Ney and Marshal Murat, who were kind of just two of the, uh, two of the most sort of uh, egotistical peacock, uh, but incredibly brave uh, of Napoleon's marshals. And they don't really, they don't really get much uh, screen time either. Um, I did enjoy... Um, Bara, Napoleon's patron, uh, played by Tahar Rahim, yes, uh, who has very, always very been one of my favorites. In a, yeah, Un Prophet, a great movie with him. Yeah, yeah. But he was, the, he was the commissioner of the Revolutionary Army who gives Napoleon his first big assignment, which is the taking of the port city of Toulon, which is the first big battle in the movie. And I thought it was really cool. Uh, what about the, the, Napoleon's first major W, taking the, the port of Toulon from the British? How did you yeah, feel about I, that depiction? I loved that sequence, just like from a filmmaking perspective. I thought it looked really cool. Uh, it's like totally, I mean, you sort of get the head, they sort of get the headlines right, but it's totally, I mean, the, the fort that they were attacking was like a entrenchment, basically. Like it was a, it was not like a big medieval castle. It was like, a, you know, some guys found this hill and like put a bunch of stakes up and dug, dug entrenchments. Um, so it didn't have that look at all. Um, and the, the plan to take it was not the plan they show in the movie at all. Um, but I did, you know, they did, they did highlight the, um, you know, kind of the overarching theme of that battle, which is 
you know, seize that one hill and then you can shoot the, the ships in the harbor. And, you know, as the movie depicts, Napoleon somehow was the only one of the of the commanders uh, in that theater who figured that out. Well, I mean, like the, the battles really are the highlight of the movie. And I guess I want to get into them. And like, uh, how did you think the movie did in terms of depicting what was Napoleon's actual genius as a military commander and particularly like a, as an artillery commander and the use of those cannons? There's a point at the end of the movie where he's about to go into exile and he's addressing a bunch of like British midshipmen who are all like the, you know, 12 year old boy slaves on the British Navy. <laughs> and he and he says artillery is simply a matter of geometry. What, what did he mean by that? Ev? And like, how, how did the movie depict that? Well, that, that to me was actually the, the single biggest weakness of the movie is you don't get much of a taste of. Uh, I mean, I think if you didn't know anything about Napoleon, you might walk out of that being like, how the hell did that guy get it to be in charge of anything? Because um, they don't really depict sort of what made him good at what he did. But um, they do kind of hint at it at the end, as you said. And that, that artillery is just geometry is, he never exactly said that, but that is, you can see where they got that from because he did say things like that. And that is, um, it, it's more than just the artillery, though. It's also just kind of, you know, the revolution was, uh, the, the French army was basically destroyed by the revolution and they had to rebuild it. And so it's just sort of Napoleon understood what the new army built by the revolution could do. And that was sort of, I think, the, the key to his genius. And I remember from the, our last episode about the duelists, like a very, a very interesting point about the Napoleonic age and, and Napoleon, the French army as, under the command of Napoleon is that unlike the opponents he was facing in, let's say, Prussia or Austria or the British, they actually like promoted into the officer, into the ranks of the officer class, people who were competent. And not just simply they fell out of the right pussy and like the right castle at the right time. Like they, it was it was a meritocratic army in a way that the officer classes of the other European monarchies weren't. Yeah, that's I mean, it wasn't just the army. Their their government was organized that way, too. And, you know, it's one of those things that like looking back, it seems so ridiculous. You know, the idea that you would actually not want to have the most qualified people in charge of things. Um, but that's really that is how, um, you know, the old regime powers thought of the world, that it was more important to sort of uh, maintain the tradition of who is the rightful ruler than it is to actually have the people who are in charge be qualified. So, I mean, it's not hard to see, like, how he was racking up <laughs> W after W against opponents of just, you know, a sclerotic officer class of just these bums who have been, you know, <laughs> handed uh, the, the commission their entire life. I, I did kind of appreciate that they hinted at that with mostly him interacting with the um, Emperor of Austria, Francis II, and uh, Alexander from Russia, in that they were just oafish little boys who uh, seemed to know nothing about any uh, function of their government or armies, uh, completely intimidated by him. And I, I feel like that was the intent of representing the uh, rotting wooden edifice that he was pushing against that, you know, allowed him to be the, the history on horseback. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, I, I actually really enjoyed both of those scenes uh, because I thought that they really nailed the, uh, you know, the, the way that these people are treating him with sort of like, a mixture of like curiosity, awe, also sort of contempt in a way because they don't see him as one of them. And I, I thought that those both of those scenes were very well done um, in showing that you know it was sort of impossible. You know, he he thought you know, hey, I'm emperor now. I'm part of the club. These guys are my peers. But that is really not how he was viewed by other people, and that was a huge problem for his government and one of the main reasons that he ultimately was not successful. Uh, actually, that's one of the things I thought the movie depicted very well. Yeah, the, the scene with Alexander II of Russia, where he's, he's like, they're, they're chilling in his, like, you know, in the battlefield tent. And, like, Alexander II is trying to, like, uh, be, you know, sort of be cool with him. And he's like, I really wish we were brothers. And Napoleon goes, funny that you mention it. You have a sister, right? Oh, what's the deal with that? And, like, from that moment, and then Russia completely betrays France and opens up, uh, you know, the trade routes to England. And then Napoleon has to invade russia is his first big l but like i guess i think i liked about like the the quirks of this era just how quickly like allegiances changed between these nations <laughs> like i mean the, the, how quickly he goes from being allied with russia to invading them and losing half a million men is kind of funny because it's basically as the movie portrays it it just he asked to marry his 15 year old daughter and uh alexander would rather burn moscow to the ground than ever countenance <laughs> right. that happening yeah, I mean, that is one of the, like, 
hard things to wrap your head around in this era is that countries uh, would just jump in and out of bed with each other and, uh, you know, would, I mean, turn on a dime from uh, the, the war before that, the one depicted when he's, uh, you know, in camp with the, with the Russian emperor, the Russians issued an ultimatum to the Prussians saying, let us through your territory or we'll declare war on you. And they issued that ultimatum with the expectation the Prussians would refuse and they'd then have to fight the Prussians. The Prussians joined the war on the side of the Russians like a couple months after that. Um, so they really <laughs> would just kind of, you know, it, it, it was not, there was no kind of ideology uh, ideology to it. It was just, you know, wh- whatever's advantageous at the moment. Yesterday's enemy is tomorrow's ally and vice versa. It's really bizarre and it's you know a big reason that there was just constant warfare in that era that must have been tough to be like an infantry soldier the guys who have to like march into formation into grape shot to know that like if you survive that battle a month later you'll be like i don't know allied with the guys who blew you to shreds yeah i mean they actually um there's a battle uh the battle of friedland uh in a they, they talk about that where napoleon uh, didn't really pursue the defeated Russian army because he wanted to negotiate a peace treaty. And he was worried that if he killed too many of them after the battle, it would make the peace treaty harder to negotiate. And so he kind of pulled his punches a little bit at the end uh, to uh, just make sure that there were, you know, no hard feelings, just a defeat. Yeah. And again, that, that one of my favorite scenes with uh, Francis II, I really like the, uh, the vibe of, um, after Austerlitz, when they're meeting with him, they have being like, "All right, let's pass around the orange slices." It's a we, you you guys put up a good a good fight, but you know, uh, now it's time to be friends. Yeah, and that's uh, that that is uh, something that I thought that they they captured very well about Napoleon's diplomacy and his and his political uh, the way he operated politically is that it was never like well not never it was rarely personal for him and he kind of didn't care much about you know he didn't really hold on to grudges well typically didn't sometimes he did but. You know, generally speaking, that was sort of how he operated, where it was, you know, like you said, passing around the orange slices after the game. Great match, guys. Um, <laughs> and I mean, that's doubly funny because we were talking about the movie's depiction of the Battle of Austerlitz, in which I mentioned earlier, it depicts like hundreds and hundreds of Austrian soldiers <laughs> being sunk in an icy lake as they're blown apart with cannon shot. So, yeah, pass around the orange slices. It's easy for Francis to do that. That's another thing I liked about this movie. Uh, in terms of the guys at the picks, probably my favorite was Rupert Everett as Wellington. And there's a really funny scene at Waterloo when like one of his oh, snipers is like looking through a scope and he's like, sir, I have I have the emperor in my sights. Am I green light to take the shot? And Wellington goes, of course not, you idiot. If generals start killing each other, we don't nothing will ever get done. He's like, <laughs> you pull that trigger, we'll kill you. Yeah, that's the uh, the uh, the 18th century operator in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That uh, yeah, that scene that that uh, to me that was I mean of all of the uh, inaccuracies that I, I could forgive in this movie that that really made me cringe because I felt like that really added nothing and it was just this kind of like it, it was like a totally modern little snippet just totally took me out of the movie. They, they did not have. Uh, the, the scoped rifle had not been invented yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. they, uh, they, they did not have like individual snipers. Had, Those riflemen fought as units, you know, had even the rifled musket been invented at that point. Like you were basically like shooting and being like, if you had like a 20 by 20 foot square that you could maybe hit. Yeah. They, um, those, uh, the, the, those guys in the green uniforms in the Waterloo scene, those are the, the British riflemen. And uh, yeah, the, the rifle sharp. musket was, Shout uh, out yeah, sharp, sharp and his exactly. boys, Sean Dean. Uh, which I, I I'm convinced is the only reason that was in there is because you know those Brits love their their sharp and they love the riflemen and uh, got to include a rifleman if it's going to be a Napoleonic thing, um, but yeah that that was the like the very cutting edge of of technology like that was that was very impressive to people that the British were able to feel field a whole regiments of guys equipped with these you know highly advanced guns that could you know actually hit the broadside of a barn because <laughs> <laughs> like the thing with muskets is like. They weren't accurate, but the ball they were firing was huge, right? Like getting hit with a musket would like uh, put a melon-sized hole in your chest, right? Like, yeah, it was, they, they were just huge, incredibly powerful, huge, and they tra- and made of soft lead, and they traveled really slow. So if you got hit with one of these things, it was just like you know getting punched in the face with molten lead. 
would just, it, uh, yeah, it was horrifying what these musket balls would do to people. Um, a question I had about like the, the Napoleonic era of combat and like the sort of uh, almost like the grotesque, absurd parody of like lining up into formation and walking into gunfire. But like, I mean, I, I was saying to contrast with the modern era, what were like the Napoleonic Wars and like the great scale of devastation and, and death that they incurred? What was it like? What was a war like for the civilian populations of Europe and like an era before like air forces and bombardment and things like that? Well, the, um, you know, the scale of warfare really increased over the course of the Napoleonic Wars. Like you look, over, you look at a battle from like the early phases of the revolution and, you know, sometimes the armies are, you know, maybe maximum like 60,000 men. Um, and then by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, you have battles where the armies have hundreds of thousands of men. Um, so warfare has, you know, really increased in scale over this period. But, you know, compared to like World War I, uh, just a hundred years later, the armies are much smaller and the wars are much more limited, you know, where the civilian population is not really getting involved. There's not really much of a sense of kind of like being on the home front during the, during a war. Um, you know, life is quite normal in Paris for most of this time, but it's the beginning of that process where, where states are sort of getting better at, at marshalling their resources and, um, you know, putting men into the field and not only putting men in the field, but putting men into the field where they can be reliably like equipped and fed and all that and trained um, and, you know, managing all those logistics. That's just coming into being in the Napoleonic era. That's actually a lot of what made Napoleon and, and his state so effective is that he was so good at that, that kind of uh, increasing the scale of warfare. But compared to what would come even only a century later, it's, it's really small scale. And you think like as, as warfare evolved to field more men, and keep them in the field of combat, like keep them at war for longer and longer periods of time. Like, like with that comes an increasing, like, you know, toll on the civilian population, I would imagine. Yeah. And, and not just a, a toll on the civilian population, but more, you know, uh, that sense of mobilization, wartime mobilization um, that had not really existed. Um, I mean, maybe you can talk about, you know, kind of specific cases on a smaller scale, but the idea of like a whole society a whole country mobilizing for the victory had not really existed uh, before the revolution. The revolution uh, was sort of what gave birth to that. You know, France was surrounded by enemies. The army was falling apart. And so basically the government kind of turned to the people and said, you know, if we're going to win this thing, we need kind of uh, almost, you know, a popular uprising sort of behind the government. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people in France told them to fuck off. But enough people heard the call that the, the French were able to win that first war. And that is sort of what, what set off this chain, uh, chain reaction of the sort of expansion of war and expansion of the wartime state until we get you know, to the 20th century, where really whole countries are at war. Ev, like, and considering like the, France's military history, if you grew up in America or English-speaking countries, Fran like France's military output is like a punchline and it's all based on World War II and the fact that like we're an Anglo country but really like isn't this like the most unfair analogy like isn't isn't like doesn't France's reputation as a military power like if you're judging it by World War II like you're that, that's cap basically because they were like the most fearsome military in Europe for like centuries right yeah you know that's something I actually just talked about in my most recent episode is that you know uh, one of the big questions I was looking at is sort of how, how did people, how did other Europeans look at Napoleon and, you know, why didn't people who came under his rule support him? Um, and part of the reason is that Europeans had it in their heads that the French were these just ruthless conquerors. Um, and so when Napoleon rolls in and says, hey, I've got, you know, big plans for your country, we're going to improve your government and improve your state. People are like, oh, yeah, bullshit. We've heard this from the French before. You know, Louis XIV said the same shit and he came and ruined our country. Um, so that was the view of the French really until the 20th century was that they were these um, sort of uh, not sort of dour conquerors like we think of the Germans today, but sort of these sort of war loving kind of, you know, like sort of evil gay sadistic, poets. Uh, <laughs> armada. Yeah. And then, yeah, it just seems like. Uh, because Britain like uh, was never fully defeated in World War II, and then they got to like sign on to the American Empire, it seems like they got to the, like set in people's minds like the stereotype of the French being effete or sort of lazy and poetic and not given to 
to martial conquest. But like, isn't that just like they're still trying to settle the score from the Napoleonic era when they fought like how many wars against them? Oh, they were. I mean, there was a, a tiny interlude of peace, but they were basically at war for, I mean, almost two decades. Again, that's something that I was not anticipating when I started doing the show uh, that uh, what a sort of load bearing uh, piece of British history the Napoleonic Wars are. Um, that's really deeply ingrained in in the English speaking world. I think the idea that uh, you know Napoleon was this horrible catastrophe that uh, only only British grit was able to stop. Yeah, because it seems like the British view of history is coming out of the 20th century, as Will saying, is that after the end of World War II, Britain gets to feel like through the entire millennia even of conflict on Europe, they ended up winning that conflict, even if America won over Europe in the end. But but they got the last W, so they won the European conflict in total. Yeah, but yeah, the, the European Thunderdome, they emerged. <laughs> Yeah, check check the record is what I got to say to that, which leads to, I think, probably the funniest line delivery I will encounter all year at the movies. Joaquin Phoenix in absolute bozo mode when he screams at the British ambassador, you think you're so good because you have boats? (laughs) And, you know, and and when uh, leading up to Waterloo, Napoleon says, like, this is a fight on land, which the British can't do. And then we get into the whole master and commander universe of, you know, oceans are now battlefields about like, yeah, like they were getting washed on like uh, on dirt under their feet. But the British fleet, the British Navy uh, was really that they were going toe to toe with uh, the the French. Right. Yeah. You know, the the French, you know, I talked earlier about the uh, the French army falling apart because of the revolution. The same thing happens to the French Navy. The problem is, uh, you know, with the army. You can kind of throw guys into combat with relatively little training on the land, <laughs> yeah. and they'll, you know, yeah, just, it's horrible. You shove but a musket in their hand and say, "Walk in that walk. direction, asshole!" We'll shoot you. And it's it's like horrible to think, but you know, over time, the survivors learn their lessons. Right? It doesn't work that way on the water. You need, you know, like a, a naval officer of that era could literally just feel the ocean under their feet and know, you know, what was going on 30, 40 miles away. You can't just kind of throw people into that and be like, figure it out. Use your revolutionary zeal to overcome your lack of experience. <laughs> I mean, say, say what you will about the uh, British Navy's uh, use of boy slaves. It made good seamen. <laughs> it, I mean, that system, it's like you read about these guys joining up. At, like, I mean, some of these guys were nine years old. And it seems yeah. just so barbaric and stupid. And I mean, a nine-year-old on a warship in a war. Uh, but it did produce these guys who were capable of doing amazing things. So it's, uh, I mean, you know, it, it, it's a disgusting era of history. What can you say? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, yeah, we in, really in didn't, pe- people really didn't really like have the thought like, oh, maybe we shouldn't like have children do this until like... <laughs> Well into World War One, really. Yeah, there were still in World War One. There were still like young teenagers on some of the British ships. Like that had that totally died out. The last of those guys actually just died this year. Oh, <laughs> I mean, in the in the Patrick O'Brien Master and Commander books, I think even as early as the first one, there's like always talk. <laughs> on the ship about like like the 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 scuttle but about which one of the officers is going to interfere with one of the nine-year-olds that they have crewing this warship but uh i'll tell you what next to the boy slaves uh, the the worst aspect of uh napoleonic combat for me as depicted in this movie were the guys in every army whose job it was was to walk into gunfire just drumming just (laughs) just keeping pace just drumming, and there's a scene where there's a guy, there's a guy just drumming by himself, and he gets hit with a cannonball and blows up. And I just like, I just think about those guys who never even had a chance. They weren't even gonna, they were, they didn't even have a chance to clap back. They were just <laughs> doing a little tune. They were just playing a little tune, and then they get shot in the face. Like, come on, I mean, the, the drumming was it really that important? You know what? One of the things that they don't show, and they, and they can't show in movies that depict combat of this era. Smokeless gunpowder had not been invented yet. So these battles, you cannot see shit. I mean, literally. Oh, yeah. Um, it's just been know, like, a, like a total haze of just white smoke. Like, I mean, that's why they wear those crazy you, yeah. uniforms is because you've got to stick together with your guys. And 
So, you know, it's good to have, you know, a big tall hat, big shiny uniform so that you can see each other on this just, you know, totally uh, smoke shrouded battlefield. And, you know, the, the combat seems it makes a lot more sense if you imagine no one can see anything because, you know, if you're in the very front of one of those columns marching towards the enemy, you know, you do at least have in your head, hey, they can't really see me. Maybe I can get through this. <laughs> We're just like, it just looks like, like a sort of like a undifferentiated mass of red or blue. And you're just like, shoot in that direction. Yeah. I mean, you read, you know, uh, there's a reason that they did all the crazy drills of this era. Um, you know, cause the, these battles are so disorienting, you know, the sound of these, uh, cannon in particular, but also the muskets when they're all fired all at once, uh, is completely deafening. Um, there's, you know, people screaming, constantly i mean you every account of a battle from this era talks about that so you can't hear anything you can't see anything not only is the their, their gunpowder from everyone else around you firing when those when you fire a musket like that you have a little a little primer of gunpowder like right next to your face that explodes so these guys are all getting like a little explosion in their face like every minute or so when they fire their muskets i mean it's just a, a totally disorienting inhuman experience so you need all this training that you can just kind of fall back on because there's no way you can really interpret what's going on around you. And to that end, I, I appreciated the um, I appreciated the depictions of the, the British Army at Waterloo, like reforming their infantry lines into anti-cavalry yes. squares and stuff. I, th- I thought that was yeah. a at least a very cool depiction of the use of infantry formations. Yeah, although it's, it's funny, they, they depict Waterloo as uh, being fought in trenches which there were no trench. I mean, it's raining. How are you going to dig a trench, yeah. right? And it actually, if, if the battle had been fought the way in the movie they depict it, they would have been very stupid to come out of those entrenchments to fight the cavalry. That's one of the reasons you <laughs> dig entrenchments is the cavalry yeah, can't yeah, get no, through yeah. them. Wellington <laughs> says, prepare for a cavalry charge, and all the soldiers get up out of the trench and march in front of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess another question I had, like particularly like, Obviously, like in, in the movie, like the, the time has to be condensed with these battles, as grand as they are. But the impression I got from these mo- from the movie was that like Austerlitz and Waterloo were over in like less than an hour. Is that true? Or did these things go on much longer than the movie depicts? Yeah, that w- I would say that's probably my my one of my biggest gripes with the battles is is they all seem like really short. Um, you know, I think the shortest of the battles that they depict is Austerlitz, which lasted from like basically dawn, like six in the morning uh, until like four or five in the evening. And that's the shortest of them. So most of the time, these things are going from just before daylight until nightfall. Uh, In a lot of cases, they're taking place over multiple days. So that was, you know, again, I'm not sure how much better they could have done. It's a two and a half hour movie about like the craziest event in history. So (laughs) (laughs) kind of limited time. Like six of the craziest events in history. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess like just uh, uh, taking overall, like, uh, you know, we we, we hear stories about rich guys buying Napoleon's hats. What is that? Uh, Brian Goldberg (laughs) currently has Napoleon's hat. But like overall, like, the, the movie arrives here like what Napoleon is still such a, a stand in for so much in our culture. But like, what do you think Napoleon means now to our culture? Is it just an aspirational figure for like other wannabe powerful men? Or or is it like, does it, is it the hope of that? Like one guy can change the world or is it a mix of both? Well, I think, um, I mean, Napoleon is such a big figure and his life was so crazy and kind of had so many different sides to it. People tend to see what they want to see when they look at him. You know, that's to me, that's kind of one of the important things to keep in mind when I'm doing my research is that, like, there is this tendency to um, people to see themselves in him, either, you know, aspirationally or, um, you know, as literally just, you know, an echo of their own character. And, you know, I do find it kind of amusing that all these rich guys, first of all, the rich guy who bought Napoleon's hat is a listener of mine, so shout out. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, it's funny to me because, uh, again, I just did this episode on kind of Napoleon's impact around Europe and, you know, kind of the main, you know, if you zoom out from his crazy life and all the battles, what really makes him important is that he was the destroyer of the old order and the person who sort of bulldozed away all the dead wood that had accumulated over the Middle Ages to make way for the modern world. And so it's funny to me that, you know, the, these rich guys who idolize him, 
if you went back in time and met kind of the equivalent person in the 1800s, they hated Napoleon. I mean, they thought that he was the Antichrist in some cases, quite literally. And it's, you know, it makes me always makes me think, you know, maybe in 200 years, rich guys will all have, you know, Stalin memorabilia and like Stalin stuff on their walls (laughs) because, you know, yeah, he's a great leader, right? He's one of the most impactful men in history. I could be a great man too, just like Stalin. Um, And it's funny to me how that, you know, just with time, sort of the, the ideology falls away and what what was, what was once radical about Napoleon uh, just kind of is no longer uh, really part of the conversation around him in pop culture, but really that's what's important about him. I mean, the battles are interesting and his life is I mean, fucking crazy. But at the end of the day, you know, that's just a story. Um, what's really significant, what people should take away from this is, you know, what was the broader significance to the human race of the, all this crazy stuff going on, which is, you know, not, not very cinematic, unfortunately. And, you know, I mean, I guess like in terms of like contemporary political language, uh, Napoleon has always been kind of a boogeyman to the the right because he represents, you know, revolution and like unrestrained, you know, like, like as you said, a, thro- a a violent overthrow of the entire old order and, and the, the creation of like a new modern era. But I, I, I'm wondering notice if you've noticed that like right wingers have, have now kind of come around on Napoleon, even British ones. I'm thinking specifically about that guy, Andrew Roberts. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Oh, He's yeah, a member of the book. House of Lords. And he was the guy who wrote uh, the piece last week about how Hamas is worse than Hitler. <laughs> but I think it's interesting, particularly on the British right wing, of the, the, the evolution of thinking of Napoleon as a monster and a tyrant that like uh, Britain's defeat of gives them the right to lord it over the rest of the world forever. To now, I think like they, they admire uh, and then crave being ruled by a, a strong man and a tyrant who has like, you know, won the world through military conquest. Well, part of it is because he was so successful, you know, um, Someone who in a previous generation is a, you know, a destroyer, you know, well, he helped set up a new order. And now, um, you know, because 200 years have passed, conservatives are very attached to the new order Napoleon helped establish. So, you know, yesterday's radical becomes, uh, you know, uh, today's, uh, uh, you know, bedrock of the status quo. Um, So it's it's really, to me, a measure of, you know, people's inability to look at kind of history as a uh, process and, uh, you know, just look at looking purely at sort of who Napoleon represented, you know, he was the, the avatar of sort of new money, rich people and, uh, liberal noblemen and white collar professionals. And at that time, (laughs) at, at that time, those people were kind of on the margins and trying to get their due today. Those are the people who run our world. And so, um, you know, naturally they do, you know, some of them at least, uh, feel this affinity to a guy who did, um, you know, fight for that class's interests. Yeah, but now that like they want to, now that today's modern conservatives would like very much like to take the world away from the liberal managerial class. I think that they're they're, uh, you know, sort of resurrecting Napoleon as 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 the hope of a guy who can of some guy who can wash away in in the course of a lifetime the social order of the world that you you're born into. Yeah, and, and that's you know that's going to be an inherently romantic. I mean, even Ridley Scott, who, as we saw, has a very jaundiced view of Napoleon, uh, you know, couldn't help. You know, the tagline of the movie is he came from nothing. He conquered everything. You know, that's going to be an inherently attractive uh, part of his story. And uh, one last question on Napoleon. He did have a brother, correct? Uh, He had uh, many brothers, actually. They kind of combined them all into one uh, in the movie. But he had, uh, yeah, he had a huge family who he uh, had a very loving and yet... Would it, would it surprise you to hear that Napoleon was also kind of domineering? He had a very interesting relationship with his family, which uh, they, you know, sort of, you know, combined them all together into the one character. I, d- I didn't know the brother in the movie was an amalgamation of many brothers, but I only bring up Napoleon's brother by way of mentioning that Ridley Scott also has a brother, Tony, who's better than him. <laughs> movie Mindset, episode one. <laughs> uh, just on Napoleon's family, because I think it just came up in the run of Hell of Presidents, or that we're posting on Patreon. One of Napoleon's brother is the grandfather of a man named Charles Bonaparte, yes. who was the founder, the first director of the Bureau of Investigation in America, which later became the really? FBI. Yes. So the FBI was first led by uh, Napoleon's grand nephew, uh, which also tags into the other movie I saw, finally saw this week, which is Killers of the Flower Moon. So, you know, oh. his... Uh, 
thinking that those two movies are linked through the Napoleon family lineage was, uh, you know, just an interesting historical trivia to me. Yeah, Charles Bonaparte's a pretty interesting guy, actually. Yeah, people should look him up. I, I will say, I will, I will compare Napoleon to the other movie I saw this week, which is Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. And this is basically Napoleon is Priscilla, but for guys. It's, <laughs> sort of, it's, a, it's a movie about, it's a, well, I mean, Priscilla is about a, you know, a, a, a young girl who is sort of uh, groomed into the life of the most famous man on the planet, not quite prepared for it. Josephine is quite prepared for it, becoming you know, the, the, the mistress of the, mo- the or the lover, the, the wife of the most powerful man alive. Uh, you know, because like Elvis, Napoleon, they were similar figures of their era. But yeah, it's, oh, it's a movie. Yeah. It's a movie that's a, it's a curated uh, experience of vibes for men who are into <laughs> yes the, the military <laughs> combat of a previous era. Um, I will I will leave it there today, Ev. I want to thank you so much for joining the show, and uh, also to recommend Age of Napoleon to our listeners. I would uh, dare I say, if you are a fan of Hell on Earth and have not already listened to Age of Napoleon, you should definitely check it out. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, you're too kind. Well, um, I'll, I'll be kinder to you than I am to the the vile tyrant Ridley Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this: it is one thing that I couldn't help thinking as I walked out of it was that the idea, you know, Scott made this movie with a middle fingers raised to historians, did it how he felt like it, made something completely outrageous that pissed a lot of people off. It's very Napoleonic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess for that, he should be, a, he should be lauded before being sent into exile. Hopefully that, that's <laughs> what I couldn't kind of, I kind of couldn't help thinking coming out of it is that this movie kind of seems like a Napoleon movie that Napoleon would make. <laughs> I mean, he would be better at sex in the Napoleon movie. Napoleon yes, movie. Yeah, other than other than that, that part, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> All right, let's uh, leave it there for today. Everett, thanks so much for coming on the show, and please check out Age of Napoleon. Thanks a lot. All right, till next time, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs> Le peuple sous